We do thank you for the way you've blessed us. We thank you for these gifts. Use them for your glory and the spread of your kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 104. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Psalm 104. I'm reading from the New International Version this morning. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations, it can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains, they went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot pass. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour into the ravines that flows between the mountains They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest under the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark off the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro in Leviathan, which you form to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, he who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. 
May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King and Creator of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would now sweeten this word uh, in our hearts and in our minds, that we might grow together in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, these are uh, busy days for me up at Reformed Theological Seminary uh, for a number of reasons, but we have a new learning management system, and I use this learning management system. It's, it's a web-based system, and I use it not only for teaching my online courses and my partially online courses, but also for my fully traditional face-to-face courses. Uh, one very nice thing about it is it, the, the quiz tool that is inside. Um, this takes a lot of time up front, but it gives you a lot of control and power, and it saves a lot of time in the long run, which is often true with learning new software. Uh, but instead of writing tests now, what I do is, uh, let's say I have a, a Hebrew, uh, five Hebrew lessons, and they have all these practice exercises. I create banks of questions, and they get stored in this software. And um, then once all the, the uh, question banks are created, to create a test, I simply say, give me five from here, five from there, five from there, and five from somewhere else. So if you're my class, uh, you all get a randomized test. Not one of you has the same test because the computer's just getting random questions out of this bank. But I also tell it to randomize all the answers. So that even if two of you happen to be sitting beside each other and you get the same question, one of you might have A as the right answer and one of you might have B as the right answer. It's very cool. Now, <laughs> one thing that, um, that I've, I've started to experiment with in, in one of my, actually in one of my traditional classes, is giving students unlimited access to the test. Now, you can't do this if you just give a traditional paper test, because if you give them another test, you're just really testing how well they remembered what questions you put on the test. But given the nature of the data banks and the fact that everything is randomized, if a student doesn't do so well when they take a test, I give them the opportunity to go back and restudy so that they can do a better job the second or the third or the fourth time. So that the tests are not just assessment tools, they're really learning tools now. Technology is just wonderful when you can apply it in these new ways uh, in education and elsewhere. Well, when I first started doing this, I, I used fill in the blank. Until I realized how creative students can be in giving you the right answer that I haven't anticipated. Because when you create a fill-in-the-blank question, you have to put in the bank every possible right answer, including all the misspellings that students might come up with. So I quit using fill-in-the-blank. But 
With a little bit of ingenuity, in one of my courses in particular, I've come back to using fill in the blank, and it's a wonderful way of testing, and I've pretty much eliminated all the foibles of, uh, of uh, student responses. Well, that's a long way of saying I've got a fill in the blank quiz question for you. <laughs> that's all that was for. Are you ready? I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Okay, now let's have a second fill-in-the-blank question. You know, group test is nice, isn't it? (laughs) Who made that song so famous? Louis Armstrong. Armstrong. Third question, fill in the blank. What was the date of its release? They get tougher. You might have to take a guess and then go back and restudy and do this one over again for a second time. 1968. And it was actually Louis Armstrong's last big hit. So it's a very significant song. 1968. What a wonderful world. Uh, Were the 60s really that wonderful? Vietnam? All the social and civil unrest of the Vietnam War? Turn on your microphone. The struggle for civil rights? Social and cultural revolution? Was Louis Armstrong guilty of some sort of blind naivete? Or did he have a profound insight into the world that God has made? Was he expressing a very profound theological truth? When he sang that song, What a Wonderful World. See, here's the question. When you look today at the world all around you, what comes to your mind? When you look at the world, do you say, What a Wonderful World? Or do you say, The world's going to hell in a handbasket really fast? See, I want to invite you to learn a lesson from Louis Armstrong this morning. I think, whether he knew it or not, he was really articulating the truth that is found in Psalm 104. That if we have the eyes to see it, whether it's in the 1960s or whether it's in 2015, when we look at God's world, we ought to be able to see something wonderful, and it ought to make a difference in our lives. Now, the psalmist did not have his head buried in the sand. If you'll recall, he is aware that there's sin. May sinners be removed from the earth. He's aware of the misery that comes along with sin. He who touches mountains and they smoke. He was aware of sin and its misery. But that's not the dominant perspective that this psalmist takes when he looks at the world around him. Now, when we think of the Bible, and if somebody were to say, where does the Bible teach us about God's work of creation, what would you say? Genesis 1. 
Very few people think about this masterful poem, Psalm 104, which is a beautiful hymn of creation and gives us insight. If I were going to name, give this hymn a title, I would simply give this hymn as its title, What a Wonderful World. Now, um, there's no possible way with the length of this psalm that, we, I'm going to, that I'm going to even try to preach on the whole psalm. I just want to give you this morning a big picture of what's going on in this psalm. I'm going to give you a big picture by giving you two smaller pictures. And the first one, and the, the one picture is going to come from the beginning and the one picture is going to come from the end. But the first picture is a picture of God's wonderful glory. When you look at the creation, when you look at the world that God has made, you ought to be able to see God's wonderful glory. Just two things. First of all, this psalm tells us that God is glorious. Look at verses 1 and the beginning of 2. Lord my God, you are very great. Now, this is not just saying that uh, God is, uh, among other things, great. When the the psalmist uses this language of great, he's using the the ancient language of kingship. In the ancient world, when you had two kingdoms, one was in the controlling position, one was in the lesser position, and the king of the kingdom in the controlling position was called the, starts with a G, the great king. And so when the psalmist uses this word great, he's painting a picture for us of God as king. Now notice what it goes on to say, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. Beautiful language, very picturesque, but what can't you wear? You can't wear splendor and majesty, right? Those are abstract concepts. Uh, and, And by the way, God doesn't have a body, so he can't be clothed anyhow. This is beautiful, poetic language that's meant to teach us things. Now, this language of splendor and majesty, it's a pair that always goes together in the book of Psalms, and it's only attributed to one person, a king. Either God as king or a human being as king. So again, having said that God is great, great king, it says that he is clothed in splendor and majesty, a pair of words that evokes royalty, glorious, splendid. See, what does it mean? What should we think of? What should come to our minds when we hear that God is clothed in splendor and majesty? That's abstract. Concretely, what it's saying is that God is clothed in splendid and majestic regalia. This is hard for us, right? Because like as dressed up as a guy can get in our culture, okay, this is not as dressed up. Glenn, suit? Jacket and pants? Does anybody have a suit on? One suit in the room. No, Zach, he's blazer and slacks. But you don't have a tie. David, we've got, one, we've got one suit in the room. That's as dressed up as a guy can get in our culture. So we've got to begin to think about other cultures where you have a, a, a lot more 
fancy regalia. I don't know whether you think of a wedding or whether you think of um, my, my middle son right now is doing honor guard um, in Texas, and they just had a big celebration yesterday where, you know, they do the sword thing where the swords come up and everybody walks under, and uh, that's, a, that's maybe as close as we can get. We, we, we're not part of this ancient world with all this beautiful regalia that would have been worn by the king. Splendid, majestic, that's God in his glory. See, the psalmist is saying that, that God himself is glorious. He's the glorious king, wrapped in regalia. Uh, but what this psalm also goes on to say at the end is that not only is God glorious, but his world is glorious. And of course, that only makes sense, doesn't it? Because if God created the world and God is glorious, what kind of creation do you think there would be in the world? Look at verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. Now again, like splendid and majestic in the beginning of the psalm, they're abstract terms, but they refer to something concrete. God wearing splendid and majestic regalia to display his glory. When the, when the psalmist says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever, he's not using the word glory to refer to some kind of abstract uh, theological, esoteric kind of concept. We could paraphrase what he's saying this way. May the glorious creation of the Lord endure forever. God's glory is his creation here. Not an abstract concept. Uh, not an ethereal concept. God's glory is his creation. Look at how the verse goes on. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Do you see the correspondence? Glory works. And what are God's works? Well, in this psalm of creation, the works are the creation. Uh, Jump back to another psalm and you'll see this. Psalm 19. It's a fairly well-known psalm. In Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, his handiwork. Now, just a little bit about Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry tends to be made up of two half lines, and there are correspondences between those half lines. Make sense? Okay, look. The heavens. What corresponds to the heavens in the next part of the line? Sky. What corresponds to declare? Proclaim. What corresponds to glory? Handiwork. In other words, the psalmist first says God's glory, just so that we don't think that's some kind of abstract, ethereal concept. He defines what he means by glory in the next half line by saying it's God's handiwork. Like Psalm 104, so too in Psalm 19, God's glory is his creation. Do you want to experience the glory of God? Take a walk this afternoon. Do you want to experience the glory of God? You don't even have to wait to take a walk this afternoon. Just look at the person who's sitting beside you. Put your hand out. Feel that person's hand. Uh, Whatever you do in God's physical world, you're experiencing the glory of God. See, 
God's glory is a visible manifestation of his invisible holiness. This is why the angels in Isaiah surround God's throne and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now I know our translations typically say the whole earth is full of his glory. I, for the life of me, I, I've looked at it. I can't figure out why our translations say that. Other than that's what the king said back in 1611 and we're still following the king. The text simply says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The fullness of the earth is His glory. It is His glory. That's what Psalm 19 teaches. It's what Psalm 104 teaches. Holy, holy, holy. The fullness of the earth is His glory. Holiness, now, that's an abstract concept that's hard to see, but the glory of God in creation is not. The glory of God in creation is the manifestation of God's holiness. And it's his visible radiance. We see this throughout Scripture. Remember when Moses wanted to experience God's glory? What verb did he use when he was talking to God? What did he ask? Show. Show me your glory. And God did. Remember, he put him in the cleft of the rock. He said, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock so that when my glory passes by, you can't see the fullness of it because nobody could experience the fullness of it. But I'll then remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face can't be seen, which is odd because God has neither a back nor a so what was he meaning? When he says, you can't see my face, but you, can't, you can see my back, he, he was saying, you can't experience the fullness of my glory because it's infinite and you are finite. It would consume you. But you can see my back. I'll give you a little G-L-I-M. I'll give you a little glimpse of it. And so Moses just gets a little glimpse of the glory. And when he comes down from the mountain, what does he have to do? He has to cover his face. Why? Because it's shining. Because he's encountered the glory of God. And now he's radiating that glory back and he's got to cover. That's the glory of God. This is why the Apostle John said in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His Glory. This is why John in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, when he was on the Isle of Patmos, heard a voice and he turned. And when he turned, he saw the sun, S-O-N. And it says his face was shining like the sun, S-U-N. Because he saw the Son of God in all of his glory. There was just some new article I read. Uh, scientists have done new calculations and they have come up with a new best guess as to how many stars there are. And I can't remember, but it was like a hundred thousand with, um, a hundred thousand with, I don't even remember how many zeros. See, it wouldn't even compute. I mean, there are billions. And billions, and billions, and billions, and billions of stars. And I say, do we really need that many? And the answer is yes. Because it takes that many fusion-burning engines in all of their brilliance just to slightly approximate something 
of what the glory of God might really be like. If you have time this afternoon, read the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel wants so badly to say, I've seen God. But he, know he, he knows he can't. So what he says is, after he has this description of ice and sapphire and fire and wheels in wheels, he says, I saw what appeared to be like the glory of God. He wants to say, I saw God, but he can't say, I saw God, so he said it was like the glory of God. But he didn't even see the glory of God. He saw what was like the glory of God. But he didn't even see what was like the glory of God. He saw what appeared to be, maybe perhaps, like the glory of God. That's what we should see when we look at God's world. When we look at the creation that God has made. God is glorious. And his world is glorious. If we have the faith to perceive that glory, whether it's in the number of stars or whether it's in a human hand that we can hold. A picture of God's wonderful glory in creation. Uh, I think Louis Armstrong understood that, folks. What a wonderful world. A second picture, this a little more briefly, maybe, A picture of God's wonderful generosity. See, two G's to take home. Glory and generosity. This psalm gives us at the beginning and at the end a picture of God's wonderful glory. At the end, it focuses on God's wonderful generosity. Uh, Four things here. God's generosity is timely. Look at verse 27. Got to get back to Psalm 104, verse 27. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. God's generosity is timely. All all creatures are waiting. In this psalm, that includes not only the animals, but also human beings. The whole creation is waiting on God to provide them food at the proper time. And he does at the right time. He provides in a timely way. Now, if you're honest, you're probably like me. You probably at times get impatient with God. You probably wonder why God's taking so much time because you know that it would be better now than in a day or two or three uh, or four. You know, not only in terms of time, but in all sorts of ways. I, I, I do banking on Saturday mornings and I got our uh, Sprint bill and there was an extra $42 on my daughter's phone this month. So that, that, was, that merited a phone call. And um, there, was a, there was a reason for it. It had to do with a new house that she uh, moved into, and there was a problem with the uh, Internet connection. So she, she had to use her data plan. She couldn't use the Wi-Fi. So uh, all made perfect sense. Of course, 
My daughter would always have a reason for why what she did always made perfect sense, and her dad's always going to buy it. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I'm, I, there was also a $9.99 charge on the phone, and it was for some game. Andy's not a game player, but I, I tried to figure it out. It's some, one of these third-party games. And so the, the nice lady at, at um, Sprint gave me a credit for the $9.99. Um, what am I telling you this for? Oh, 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 yeah. Here's what happened. She said, well, I'm talking about with my daughter's data plan. You know, what would it cost me to give her more data? So that I, because if you pay by going over, that's really expensive. It maybe be cheaper if I just boosted her data plan. She said, well, we're running a special this morning. <laughs> she said, I can put all three of you together and increase you from four gig to 20 gig. $15 a month. But... Here's the kicker. Uh, we won't charge you for the first year. I said to Annie, hey, you, you cost me $42. The new plan is going to save me $40 a month. Isn't that cool? Say yes. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. Initially, when I saw the $42, I thought, wow, there's an unexpected expense. What is the reality of it? That because of that $42, I made a call. Because I made a call, she told me about a new plan. Because she told me about a new plan, I'm saving $40 a month on my phone bill for the next 12 months. I'll spend that $42 anytime to save $40 a month. That's the way God often works. We look at it up front at one particular moment. We say, you got to be kidding me, $42 or whatever it might be. And God just says, well, just wait a minute. I work and I provide at just the right time. Now, fortunately for me, the right time was only like 10 minutes later. But that's not always the case, is it? Sometimes just the right time is a week or a month or a year or a couple of years. Or maybe you're still waiting and that just the right time hasn't quite shown up yet. But God has a generosity in his heart that is timely. It all comes in just the right time. I've told you before, no doubt, about uh, the role that Whitney Houston's music uh, has played in my past and the wonderful song that she sings, Hold On, Help Is On The Way. He may not be there when you want him to, but he'll be there right on time. God is generous, and God's generous is timely. He's not on our timetable. We need the faith to stay on his timetable, and when we do, we find that God is a God of a a timely generosity. Not only is his generosity timely, it's also satisfying. Verse 28, uh, when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. How many of us think of God as that guy up there that just loves to deprive us of things because it is so good for our sanctification? Well, God's timing is not our timing. But notice how this text says that God opens his hand and he satisfies them. Human parents, don't we love to see the satisfaction on our kids' faces when we give them something good? And 
That's true of us, though. We're evil. How much more so with God does he find great delight in satisfying his children with good things? And we could look at a number of texts, but for time, let's just jump up to one, Psalm 145, because it's very close to this. Psalm 145, verse 14 says, The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, sounds just like our psalm, and you give them their food, just like our psalm, at the proper time, just like our psalm. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. God's generosity is not only timely, God's generosity is also a satisfying generosity. Uh, Look at the end of Psalm 81 sometime this afternoon, perhaps. And that Psalm 81, God says, I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Who knows that old hymn? Oh, there's honey in the rock. We got any Baptists here? Oh, there's honey in the rock. There's honey in the rock, my brother. There's honey in the rock for you. Leave your sins for the blood to cover. There's honey in the rock for you. That language of honey in the rock comes right out of the book of Psalms. That sweet, satisfying, uh, as long as it's not too much and our blood sugar doesn't go up too high. But that, 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 uh, what, what's the honey that's supposed to be the best honey for you? Starts with a T, comes from uh, Tupelo, Tupelo, if you're going to do honey, do Tupelo honey. It's, the, it's really good. And, and supposedly it doesn't do all this stuff to your innards when you eat Tupelo honey. comes from Tupelo, Mississippi. Is it Mississippi? Yeah. You get the picture. God, God's generosity is timely. And when it comes, it is so sweet. It is so satisfying to the soul. God's generosity is also sovereign. Verse 29 Verse 29 says, when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. God is the one, Hannah's psalm, who not only gives life, but he also brings death. Life comes from the hand of God. Life is to be lived with gratitude to God because it's a sovereign gift of his. And it's in the fourth place, a renewing generosity. Look at that verse 30. When you send your spirit, they are better to say recreated than created. And you renew the face of the ground. God's generosity is renewing. Now, it's important to note the order between 29 and 30. 29 speaks of death. 30 speaks of life. Death is a reality. It's part of the fallen world in which we live and we cannot escape it. And not only death as the end, but all the small deaths that we experience that lead to that final death. But just as in this psalm, so in God's world, death does not get the last word. Death is not the last word. Life is. Because Jesus experienced the ultimate death, paying the penalty for our sins. But was that the last word? No, God had another word, and that word is resurrection. 
resurrection from the dead so that life is the last word. See, Jesus understood Psalm 104, which is why he said, I have come to live a life of perfect righteousness in your place, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, to be raised from the dead for your justification so that you might have life in all of its abundance. It really is a wonderful world. Louis Armstrong was right. I'm sure he did not have his head in the sand. He understood all too well the sin and the misery that was all around him. But that was not the dominant perspective that he had. He had another perspective. Somehow by faith he was able to look and see beyond all of that and see that this really is a most wonderful world. And that's what Psalm 104 invites us to. Just... uh, One thing in conclusion, there are really benefits to having the eyes of faith to see the wonderful world that God has made. And one of those benefits is that it's a source of joy. If you watch some parts of the news, you don't come away filled with joy. But if you can experience the glory and the generosity of God, it fills your heart with joy. The psalmist speaks of this. It talks about God rejoicing in his works. And then it says, may I rejoice in the Lord. Well, if God rejoices in his works, creation, and I want to rejoice in God, how do I rejoice in God but by rejoicing in what God rejoices in? God rejoices in the world that he has made. And so if we want to rejoice in the Lord, we can learn to rejoice in the world that God has made, but that takes faith to see the wonderful world that God has made. Seeing the wonderful world is a source of joy, and it's also a source of praise. The psalm starts by saying, praise the Lord, and it ends by saying, praise the Lord. Let's turn the language of praise into glory. Where do you find the source that you need to glorify God? One place you find it is in the wonderful world that he has made. Now, I'll close my closing by asking the question, why does the Westminster Catechism say that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy? You see, those, you see that pair? Glorify God and enjoy Him? How can we do that? We can do that if we see and as we experience that God has made a wonderful world. He has made a wonderful world as a source of our glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever. And one of the ways we enjoy God is by enjoying the world that God has made. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that You would uh, write this Word on our hearts, that we might, uh, through it, grow in our knowledge of You and ourselves and the world that You have made, that we might more enjoy the world that you have made and that we might more honor you along the path. Praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's us.